You're listening to Dirt Cheap from Neon Hum Media. I'm Jeffrey Golden. And I'm Amanda Meadows. We're going to be finishing off Chapter 1 of Murder in the Glass Room by Edwin Rolfe and Lester Fuller. Oh, so it took two guys to do this. Yes, two amazing guys. (laughs) Let me actually tell you a bit about them. It seems to be, for all we know, it's the only book they wrote together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, there's very little information about this book, so it's hard to know, like, why they wrote it, yeah. how they wrote Who it. Who are they? Lester Fuller is, like, a noir writer. Like, it, this was perhaps his only book, but he's written a number of noir films and TV shows uh, okay. that came out after this book. He wrote an early Audrey Hepburn movie. Rudy's presence in Paris holds as much interest for me as, as the price of hashish and Siam. So that kind of, that era. Dang, okay, okay. Yeah. The really interesting guy is Edwin Rolfe, who was a poet and a journalist, and he wrote and edited The Daily Worker, which is a communist newspaper. So he was like a full-blown commie. Um, He joined the Communist Party in 1925, and Warner Brothers actually acquired the film rights to the book. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall were going to star in the film adaptation. Wait, what? Yeah. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. But apparently the project got canceled because of McCarthyism, because of the Red Scare, because of communism. Oh, okay. So Edwin was a communist, and Lester may also have been a member of the Communist Party as well, but he wasn't blacklisted, apparently. I don't know if Edwin ever was formally blacklisted, but the project was canceled, so Warner Brothers did not want to take a chance. Okay, so back to the second half of chapter one. Amanda, do you remember where we last left Phil? Ugh, yeah, he was like on his way to Edna's house to yep. talk about the divorce. Absolutely. But like while a party's happening? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't feel good about this. <laughs> no, you, you should feel bad. Something bad is going to happen. Okay, let's go. We are with Phil in his car. A red light stopped me a few minutes after I left the towers. While I waited for it to change, a chubby brown hand appeared through the window. And before I knew what was happening, the hand was pinning an orange paper flower to my lapel. As the hand disappeared, a chubby face leaned in and intoned, Help the boys who helped you. I handed him four bits. He looked at it and then looked at my Lincoln Continental with an appraising scowl and said, They shed their blood for you in the Pacific, buddy, and moved to another car. Then the light changed. Boy, a lot of... of (laughs) He uses the word chubby a lot (laughs) to describe this person. There is so much disdain. chubby face. brown, chubby dude. Yep. Wow. I also find it funny. It's like he's got like a million ways to describe like a sofa, but he has to describe like a person with the same adjective twice. (laughs) There's only one way to describe someone who is asking for charity. And that is nothing but contempt. Contempt and, <laughs> and ridicule. The chubbies of the world are always wow. after are always after my ducats. The road wound up and around the Hollywood Hills, but the convertible took them smoothly and easily. 
then where the houses thinned out, where all you could see was the decomposed granite of the hills peeping out from under a scraggly cover of brown weeds, there was our house. It was the kind of place the ads called a residence. A party was going on inside. Edna loved to have people around. She always said that she felt dead if she wasn't in a crowd. That was all right with me when we were working at being married. But the trouble was that her crowd and I never mixed. They always looked down on me because they were social register or actresses who hadn't worked in five years or respectable businessmen who had nicely polished brass signs outside their offices. The festivities were going full blast in the living room, but I couldn't see Edna. The usual mob was there, a German refugee director who hadn't worked since the story leaked out that he had unnecessarily reshot one scene endlessly because the actor was Jewish and he had to be beaten up every time. Three Pasadena matrons clucking about the fate of the world. A writer who didn't write. A heavily jeweled redhead who was happily paying a 10% commission to a local mobster who had arranged her marriage to a 63-year-old millionaire. An assortment of 4F polo players on the make for well-heeled busty girls and a notorious beauty treatment specialist who had not so long before been a quack dispenser of cures for social diseases, but who was now writing books on diets for beauty. Damn, is he at Oprah's house? Also, like, <laughs> did you, like, I mean... There's so I, much was, to unpack. There was, I mean, like, I'm still not over the German expressionist filmmaker. So let's talk about okay. that first, because yeah, I, I think I, that's definitely I a, think we need to drill down on that. Um. So one thing I find fascinating is, okay, I understand that this guy is a German, the war is over, but he still hates Jews, and he is a director who wants to see a Jew get hurt. But that being said, it also, that's not how movies work. A, that's not how movies Typically, work. Typically, people who are getting beat up in a movie aren't getting beat up in real life. It's all stage it's, combat. I mean, unless the, the director was like, this has to be real, so you have to take real hits. does not typically happen. That does not compute. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't uh, compute. It does not connect. And then, uh, like, just the way he says a German and then says the actor was a Jew, he just introduces this as a binary, which I'm right. pissed off about. It's this other sign of where America really was in the 40s. I right. mean, right before World War II, half the country were fascists and half the country were socialists. It's true. Other things about, uh, about Phil... This crowd, to him, it's like a director who doesn't direct, a writer who doesn't write, an actor who doesn't act, a, a grip who doesn't do lights. There's so much, like, Dunning-Kruger effect happening <laughs> where it seems like he's assuming he knows how other people's jobs are done. Right. And, like, clearly has no clue and it keeps being betrayed by how he describes shit. I know. It's so funny. He literally thinks every <laughs> occupation is a scam. Everything is a scam because he's a scam of a person, so everyone must be a scam. There's that Trump thing again. He, oh, my God. It's true. Of You're like, right. Of, like, Republicans being like, yeah, everybody is a liar. Because we Republican politicians are lying. Yeah, it's exactly like why people in the upper castes of society think that if minorities get majority rule, that they will do the same things that white people did. And that's why they're so scared. Right. <laughs> and it's like, nah, dude. <laughs> like, 
wow, you're really telling on yourself. <laughs> okay, so he is blaming the the disintegration of their relationship on Edna's crowd. So he didn't fit in with this crowd. Yeah, because he's not cool. Right. Like, so it seems like his wife is, like, friends with a lot of cool artists. <laughs> and he seems to, like, resent that. Listen, right. I don't want to get into, like, couples therapy here. But it seems like there's, like, a clear, Let's get, like. What else do we have to do today? Let's as get a couple. Therapy. <laughs> We're a couple. We, I, we, as, <laughs> as people who've been together for 12 years happily, Absolutely. I think it's our responsibility to help it's, Edna and It's our responsibility <laughs> to tell other couples what they're doing wrong. And we do it Real all or imagined. The that's right. When we get together with friends, that's all we do is we're like, let's, let's talk about your relationship. People love it. Our oh, friends yeah. love that. But no, no, we're, but you're right. We have experience, obviously, as a married couple. What do you think of this? Do you think that that has merit or do you think that that is an excuse that he is telling himself or us in this case? I, I mean, it's definitely an excuse, yeah. right? I mean, Feels it's very excuse. It's never. I don't know that this couple can be helped. Yeah. But at least she's cooler than him. I feel like that that's like a small reward. I think I think she is, too. He, and otherwise, you wouldn't be so threatened by her. Yeah. Yeah. Though there may be another reason why uh, he's oh. threatened by her, as we will get into uh, later. Amazing. In the book. Yeah. All right. Let me continue here. It gave me no pleasure at all to see this crowd, so I went off to the other side of the house to find Edna. Although the place was colonial in every respect, there was one thing that threw everything out of kilter. It had been Edna's idea, not mine, and although I had fought with her for two days over it, she had won. One side of the entrance hall was blocked off by a wall of glass brick with a thick door of plate glass centered in it. It made that part of the house look like a fancy real estate agent's office. As I crossed over to it, I saw Edna. That is, I saw her figure behind the glass brick. I couldn't have been mistaken, not after two years of married life, not after looking at her for two years in evening gowns, in bathing suits, and in panties and a bra. I want to say there's a lot is, of bragging for someone who claims to have fucked his wife. But, uh, <laughs> it's, but it's also like weird bragging. It's like a ch what a child would say. It's like, oh yeah, <laughs> I've oh. even seen her panties. Yeah, Cindy McClellan. Yeah, I've seen her in her bra and panties. Mm -hmm. But you bet she had one, <laughs> and I've seen it. Multiple times. With my own peepers <laughs> right here. <laughs> I also want to just flag, he spent way too long discussing the glass. Uh, that glass the brick. The glass brick with the, with the plate glass in the middle. It's this like, is what he loves. He should have lived now and been the host of Extreme Home Makeover. Yeah, he would have his own franchise on HGTV. Okay, so the next scene of the book features violence against women. If that's something you don't want to hear, uh, skip ahead about a minute. There she was behind the glass brick, arguing with someone. I didn't recognize the other figure. All I knew was that it was a very tall, very skinny man, and that he was terribly mad about something, because his arms flailed around like a windmill. The man looked as if he was screaming, and I could see Edna vigorously shaking her head. Then it happened. He raised his arm and slammed his hand hard across Edna's face. I took a step towards the door. After all, Edna was still my wife, legally. 
And then I remembered that I didn't care a hoot. I walked slowly into the living room. Cool guy, right? Oh my god. Let's his wife <laughs> lets his wife be slapped by some dude, doesn't say anything, doesn't interfere on her behalf, doesn't help. It's kind of dark. Yeah, pretty dark. That's like intense. So like he doesn't leave the party either. No, no, no. He goes to the living room. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's going to keep hanging out. Only until it was clear that his wife wasn't safe in her own house was he comfortable in it. That's what this home needed. Also, maybe could have used some horse paintings. Maybe a couple. Maybe we could should have gotten a horse painting and my wife getting <laughs> slapped. Those are the two things that really make a home feel like a home to me. Yeah, no, uh, wow. uh, yeah, really, really shitty dude. I mean, even if you don't like your wife, even if you're thinking about separating or things aren't going well, I mean, you still would say or do something. By the way, we, we were talking about this crowd. Phil does not like this crowd. Right. What kind of crowd do you think Phil does like? I'm worried that he doesn't have friends. I don't think he's got any friends. I Like, maybe he goes He has to, professional entanglements. Oh, yeah, a ton yeah, of those. Yeah, a lot of those. Yeah, I would guess, like, at best, maybe there's a bar he goes to where yeah. people tolerate him, where he's like a bar fly, where people are like, oh, God, Phil's here. Well, hey, Phil. Right, it's like the bar where all of the worst dudes hang out, so it's just kind of par for the course. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? No. Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. A couple of the regulars who remembered me said hello, but most of the guests were strangers. At the bar, I poured myself a double with lots of ice and very little soda and sat down in a sofa in the corner to wait. A pasty-faced young man flopped down beside me and said, Stinking party, isn't it? Nothing but a bunch of social butterflies. They spin not, neither do they toil. You know what I mean? Here the world is falling into ruin, and all they do is pass their time away. I didn't answer. He pulled himself up off the sofa. Oh, an introvert, he said pugnaciously. I don't like introverts. All they do is sit and think. They... He stopped suddenly, staring at my chest. Forgive me, sir, he said. I had you all wrong. You can never tell a book by its cover. And he wandered away. Unconsciously, I rubbed my hand across my chest. I felt a sharp pinprick. Then I remembered the paper flower. I removed it and saw the words, Veterans United, stamped on the white tag attached to the stem. I dropped it into an ashtray. Yeah, he really hates veterans. <laughs> I mean, this is, like, pretty amazing. He's definitely got something. Yeah. Some kind of animosity. Also, this guy's a real character. This uh, this guy who stinking party, isn't it? <laughs> Nothing but a bunch of social butterflies. Yeah, I'm confused about that. Was he being ironic? Like, was he... No, I think... Nobody in the 40s is ironic, That's, I think, yet. Yeah, I don't you're think right. They, they hadn't yet. discovered it yet. <laughs> I think he's a guy who's, like, overcompensating. He's, like... He's like, though, what a bunch of losers, am I right? We're not losers. We love to talk. 
We're two talky guys talking to each other. Yeah, this is super weird. <laughs> He's a super weird yeah, guy. Yeah, these the, these two men are clearly oil and water. <laughs> Off on the other side of the room, a bald composer who worked at one of the studios started to pick out some chords on the piano. A tall girl, whose dress was too tight in the rear, leaned over and started to sing. Nobody thought of turning off the radio, and nobody seemed to mind. I was working on my second double when Edna came into the room with a very tall, bony man. They were arm in arm, and they laughed and chattered to each other like the best of friends. He was about 10 years older than I, about 42 or 3, I should say. He was over 6 feet 2, but there was no flesh on his bones. From across the room, he looked healthily tanned, but when he got closer to me, I could see that the color was really caused by innumerable tiny purple veins that gathered themselves into solid splotches on his cheeks. A funny thing was that the part of his head above the eyebrows didn't quite go with the rest of his face. The skull flared out broadly and topped with a mass of thick, iron-gray hair piled back into a great dry pompadour. So, first of all, I just want to say, he notices everybody's eyebrows. This is an this eyebrows is guy for sure. Brows man. He's a big, brows man. Big time brows man. Big time brows man. I think it's fascinating. I This is one thing where I don't know if he's totally far off because I'm an eyebrow aficionado. Uh, That's true. I have uh, big brows. I'm a big yeah, brow guy. I'm a fan of big bushy brows. This is, this is no surprise here. But when you but, go look at somebody's face, is that eyebrow like one of the first key things as opposed to like, because common people say, you know, what do I look at when I look at somebody? It's like eyes would be like a common thing. Yeah, if I'm looking at know. someone's eyes, inevitably I'm looking at their brows. So it's mm. never like a thing where I'm like consciously clocking it. <laughs> right. But I'm definitely like making a note of, Ooh, I wonder if this is penciled in. I wonder if this has been threaded. Like there's like a weird background program in my brain that has that takes pleasure in guessing how someone is grooming their eyebrows. They stopped in front of the sofa and I got up. How wonderful you were able to come, Edna said. I just stood there looking at her pale, cool skin and her purple black hair. I had to admit that she was damned attractive, even when I tried to be impersonal about it. I want you to meet a good friend, she was saying, noting where my eyes were. Phil, this is Mr. Stanley. Uh, I should say Professor Stanley. And this, she turned pleasantly to the tall man, is my husband, Phil Norris. Professor Stanley beamed at me. Mm, uh, happy to meet you, he sighed in a very cultured voice. But I hadn't come there to make social acquaintances, so I ignored him and turned to Edna. What's up? I asked. Relax, darling. Don't rush things. That was always your great fault. She smiled at me cozily. I want a drink, she said in a tone usually reserved for the hired help. But it didn't make me jump as it used to. Instead, I offered her what was left of mine, which was mostly melted ice. She turned up her nose. The bar's over there, I said. The professor took it all in. He smiled with the satisfaction of a just-fed baby and said, I'll get it, my dear. Quit stalling, Edna, I said. She protested good-naturedly. But my guess. I was beginning to lose my patience. Look, Edna, I was supposed to be here to talk over certain matters of business at five o'clock. It's now 20 minutes past. Huh, <laughs> I just want to take a moment. This 
This interaction says a lot. Yeah, I this think. is this is revealing. Yes, about what what the problems were. First of all, I love it's like so he arrives at five o'clock expecting to immediately get her attention and conduct whatever business. Right. In the middle of like a party with a lot of people. There are a lot of assumptions happening. And my favorite is that she should resign to drinking his backwash. Yeah. That was incredible. Like that was such a like childish move. Like it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, clearly. Just like shaking your like mostly melted ice drink at your estranged wife. Yeah. Yeah. You want a new drink? Why don't you drink this? I think the author's intent is to give like the dejected male reader, a thrill of like, what if I could insult my wife in this way? I think that's like what the intent is. Oh yeah, it's all about getting points. You want to own the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> what do we think of uh, smiles with the satisfaction of a well-fed baby? It seems like anyone who is satisfied or pleased with literally anything, with living, yeah. is some kind of soy boy baby. Right. And like There's something wrong with you. If right. you are, if you are happy or you like someone or something, you are a problem <laughs> to Phil Norris. Yeah, he's kind of a Debbie Downer. Her eyes, which I had once described as innocent, looked troubled. She was just about to say something when the professor came back with a tall drink. That must have been all scotch. Edna thanked him for his trouble and then took a long swallow. That was a bad sign, because ordinarily, Edna never touched a drop. That is, except when she was in one of those periods between dropping one enthusiasm and picking up another. So, like... Between enthusiasms. Yeah. Was that how depression was described in the 40s? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I can't get out of bed and I can't stop drinking. I'm between enthusiasms. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he I think he means it to be uh between paramours. But yes, I mean to Phil, it would definitely be enthusiasms would definitely be depressions for sure. Yeah, like this is just a woman who's really sad unless there's people around her. I know, yeah. She's a she's a social butterfly. He's a hater, as they say on YouTube. He's a he's a he's one of these guys who hates. She looked up at me again, and then, without turning to the professor, said, Forgive us, won't you? My husband has something he wants to tell me. The professor said, Certainly, my dear. As if in the whole world there wasn't anything he wanted more. We went up the winding stairway into the bedroom, and I walked over to the window and lit a cigarette while she closed the door. It gave me the trembles to be in that room again. Entering it now, I felt as if I had never left it, or at least never been far from it. There was the big, oversized bed, and the triple mirrored dressing table, and the blue furry rugs. There was the graceful chaise long I had bought for her when they had auctioned off the furnishings of a German countess who'd left hurriedly for South America not long after Pearl Harbor. I stared at the bed without meaning to, my mind playing tricks on me. There was the side I had always slept on, the right side. The room was big and airy and cluttered with dozens of odd bits of furniture, but I was sure that even now, a year later, I could still find my way around it in the dark. Yes, it gave me the trembles, but I guess the whiskey helped me control myself. So, a question for you. Please. Uh, would you buy 
a remarkable piece of furniture from a Nazi estate sale. No. Say it's something you've always wanted. Nope. Like you always wanted that Eames chair. Not happening. But it belonged to a Nazi. <laughs> Never happening. In Buenos Aires. I do not want it. There is nothing. The only thing that I would take from a Nazi is something a Nazi stole from the Jews. Like, if this was a piece of furniture that they stole from Jews, then yes, I am definitely taking it. Right. But if it's just like there, it's just like, oh yeah, this was Nazi-made, Nazi-owned furniture. (laughs) Made by Nazis for Nazis. (laughs) No, I do not want it. I don't want it in my house because what are you doing? I'm going to think about Cursed furniture. It's cursed furniture. I'm going to think about Nazis So, like, imagine this, like, Edna's house is like Probably full of cursed Nazi furniture. Oh, a hundred percent. Do you think they have some of the like Nazi paintings? Uh, uh, yes. You Maybe mean, they I, like managed to buy some liquidated gold. This is a house that contains secret gold, secret Nazi gold for sure. Yeah. I am. I am eighty percent confident that there's Nazi gold somewhere in the house. That. Edna discovered that I guess he maybe it was in like maybe it was like sort of sewn into the chaise lounge or something. I think Phil Norris hid the gold in the house to be like clever and smart and is like keeping it in there because he figures that she'll like never find it. Right. And it's like safe there. And she has already found it. Right. Because he thinks like he's infallible. Like right. Edna's so dumb. She'd never <laughs> find anything he found, even right. though she's the person who lives in the house and every she, day. And she has like found it at this point and like already spent that. She money. found it like the, the found it the second he left. Right. Edna sat down on the chaise long and sipped on the drink she had brought with her. She seemed to be far away, just as she had been far away every time I'd come into her room in the last few months of our married life. That was the time when she'd been her bitchiest, when she'd told me that marrying me had been just another one of her hobbies. She said she wanted to know what it felt like being the wife of a gutter mongrel after her first experience with a member of the Italian aristocracy. I had cried that night for the first time since I was 16. I had cried because I knew she was a bitch and because I loved her. But all that was over now. She laughed. All right, I'll say it. I'm ready to give you your divorce now. My divorce? The divorce, she amended, as though she were bestowing a great favor. What's the catch? I asked, as if I didn't know it was coming. Catch? Yes. Don't act innocent. You're not the type. She thought for a moment, as if this were a brand new idea with her, and she had to puzzle it out. Finally, she said, All right, here's the catch. No alimony. We'll make it final, but I want a settlement. Keep talking, I said. A good settlement. In cash. I waited. I want $100,000. I need it. You're a worm. So what do we think? Okay, so first of all, uh, according to him, she told him that the reason she wanted to marry him was because she wanted to know what it was like being the wife of a gutter mongrel. What what do we think of what do we think of that? Um, that's pretty harsh. Although part of me wonders if it's the type of thing that you would say because you wanted the other person to like leave you or because you wanted the other person to sort of respond, you know? Yeah. This is definitely like one of those statements that you shoot out in the ramp up 
of a good fight. You know, this feels like an escalation, but it also feels like a, you know, a lament. I mean, who hasn't had a parent who's been divorced at this point? And like one of your parents is always going to be like, exaggerating how awful it was. That's what this feels like to me. Yeah. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying, but it does seem like it wasn't like really how she felt in that sense. It seemed like a believable way of her just sort of being like, ugh. Yeah, right. You, ugh. (laughs) Gross. He's admitting that he cried to the reader for the first time since he was 16. I guess this took place like a year ago, so... Yeah, I mean, you know hey. th- that uh, that. Yeah, he, was, he hates the listen, like one the person the last person who ever gave him like a feeling. Yeah, I mean it's it's fascinating. The sentence is fascinating. I had cried because I knew she was a bitch and because I loved her. It's one of those lines that's like kind of meant to be oddly sweet. Yes, but I think it's so. like it's sort of that you know that moment in the middle of a fight where you start like remembering who you were, like how you felt for them. Right. Or whatever. Yeah, this this dude is such a softie. Yes. And he puts on all of these airs. He is a- To avoid feeling a single feeling. Uh, which is a child, basically. Like a man child. Interesting. It's a man child. Yeah, I mean, yeah. This is somebody who hasn't sorted out their own bullshit. Like, projects a lot onto others. Says whatever to whoever does like childish things and says childish things. To and get attention. To get attention, right, yeah. Yeah, this is all very fascinating. We are spelunking into the psyche of <laughs> a fascinating creature. You wonder if there are many men in the 1940s who would admit to, I guess, a reader of their lives that they had cried. It's an interesting thing. Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting moment of vulnerability. It's Um, a rare moment of vulnerability that is only brought out in order to describe or demonstrate how rare it is. Look how seldom I cry. So it's a big deal that this, like, this thing must have been really bad because, wow, I never cry. It's this weird mixture of vulnerability and misogyny. It's like a whirlpool of vulnerability. Oh, yeah. You can't have one without the other. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and it's only because it's only being used as a measure of how horrible this one lady was to me or this, you know, and it's, yeah, it's bullshit. Yes, 100%. This is exactly someone who cries when, like, there's a scratch on his fucking Lincoln, right? Yeah. Now, she wants $100,000 in cash. Now, it's interesting, $100,000 at that point is like, what, like, we're probably talking about like a million dollars. Yeah, it's probably about a million. Do we think that Phil Norris has a million dollars? You know... From the description, I'm not sure. I I wouldn't assume that he is a millionaire bookie. Um, You know, I mean, he's doing well. I mean, he has people working for him, I guess. But that doesn't mean he's a millionaire. Yeah, he's doing well, but a millionaire would be that He has the insecurity of someone who isn't a a millionaire. Yeah, that's who doesn't have to worry about money. Yeah. Okay, Amanda, I've got a weird favor to ask you. Okay. This next scene is kind of confusing. They're throwing around a bunch of numbers, so I think it's kind of hard to follow. So uh, would you mind reading the lady parts? <laughs> okay. And I'll, I'll, share the, I'll share the book with you so you can, <laughs> okay. so you can see it. Uh, just uh, I'm going to start with right here at the bottom of page 14. Oh, okay. Got it. I waited. I want $100,000. I need it. 
you're a worm. She was on her feet now. Is that your answer? Edna, I'd pay a million bucks to get rid of you. Well, I only need a hundred thousand. I haven't got it. Get it. I gave you the house. Sell it, and I'll give you 20,000 more. I couldn't get more than 25,000 for the house. 20 and 25 makes 45. That's not enough. It's all I have. Not enough. I started for the door. Phil, you're lying. You're just trying to bargain with me. I played with the doorknob. All right, so I'm lying, I said. But 35 is absolutely tops. My last set. <laughs> He is the worst negotiator. It's truly it's one thing incredible. To, it's one thing to bounce another number, and it's another thing to be like, yeah, I'm a liar. I'm a big, fat liar who can't be trusted. Yeah, he rolls over so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> he rolls over like a dog doing a trick. <laughs> like the way a bookie normally wouldn't. Yes, you would think. <laughs> normally, it's like, it's like, pay me my money. Or I'll, or I'll beat you up with my brass knuckles. Yeah, cement shoes and whatnot. Right. Yeah. It's what you'd imagine a bookie would uh, would say. Thank you. Yeah. Not, uh, not Phil. Her answer was a long time in coming. You could never get away with a lie with me, darling. This time I believe you. But I've got to have it tomorrow. I didn't look at her for fear I'd hit her. Is that all? I asked. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, wow. he was like, uh, oh, some some rando hit her earlier. Oh, okay, mind maybe, if I cut in? <laughs> right. Maybe this is yeah. something I could do too. Hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. It's fascinating to see uh, your wife get slapped and get jealous of the person slapping her. I know. Uh, I but that that's me. that's who we're dealing with. Yeah, <laughs> real cool, real stand-up guy. Incredible. No, darling, that's not all. It's got to be in cash. I left her there. By the time I reached the convertible in the driveway, my blood pressure was boiling. She had got almost 100% more out of me than I wanted to give. I almost broke a gear tooth in getting started. There were a lot of people getting into their cars, and I had some trouble getting out on the road and in the fog. And that is the end of chapter one. Dang. So, uh... He uh, nearly broke a gear tooth. He nearly broke a gear tooth. I mean, that sounds like someone who's just real embarrassed that he uh, showed so his own hard. ass. In, so in hard. A like, he can't so negotiate. Hard. I think it's... He is... How is he a bookie? He, By making other people do his bookieing? That is very funny observation. Yeah, I know. It's like... It's sad, he sounds like he is incapable of actually doing business. <laughs> He's a sad mess. He, like, <laughs> when I think of a new, like, the first noirs I watched were, like, parodies of noirs. Right, so it same. Would be, it would be, like, Garfield is a noir, and, like, Kermit the Frog is a noir, and, like, Ernest solves a murder is, like, a noir, you know. So it's all, like, noir parodies. But even those parody noir characters are tougher than Phil Norris Oh, absolutely. Is. The Marlon Brando pigeon in Goodfeathers <laughs> is like a million times the man. <laughs> well, uh, this is uh, this is an exciting book and it's only going to get more exciting. What are some of the, the spine-tingling questions readers are left with? How is he going to get this money? 
That's a big question. Where is he going to get the rest of the 100K? Yeah. Uh, or uh, th- where is he going to get the 35K? Okay. That's what they agreed on. Yeah. Okay, they agreed on 35K. He's so where is he going to get it? Gotta get that from somewhere. Gotta the get horsies? it from somewhere. Maybe. Maybe he'll bet on his own horsies. Amanda, next time on Dirt Cheap, Phil Norris is going to get that $35,000 by making a drastic decision. A drastic decision? Yeah. Okay, this will be good. It is the most drastic thing he could probably do. So, and in chapter two. And it's in chapter two. So he, what a ride. He makes a cool self-sabotaging decision <laughs> <laughs> right at the opening of chapter two. You won't want to miss it. And then he has another uh, super awkward interaction with Edna. Oh, good. Uh, that's, wow. Uh, okay. Well, let's. I'm ready. Let's let's get into it. We'll do it. Well, that'll right. be that'll be for next time. <sighs> I got to rest my vocal cords. I got to gird myself. Dirt Cheap is a Neon Hum podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Golden. And me, Amanda Meadows. Our producer is Carla Green. Associate producer is Kate Mishkin. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Editing by Vikram Patel. Original music by Chris Katinas. Our engineer and sound effects guy is Scott Somerville. See you next episode for another exciting chapter of Murder in the Glass Room. <laughs> <laughs>